This week we're looking at the work of Gaston Bachelard, and in particular his understanding of the scientific mind. The reading comes from his book called The Formation of the Scientific Mind, which was first published in French in 1938, when Bachelard had already established himself as an important and original figure in philosophy of science and epistemology. By this time he had written nine books. Two of these were on time, The Intuition of the Instant and The Dialectic of Duration, one on the history of atomism, atomistic intuitions, and the rest were addressed to the nature of scientific thought. In particular, they addressed the nature of modern scientific thought, for Bachelard was fascinated by the transformations that science had undergone in the early 20th century with the appearance of quantum physics and Einstein's theory of relativity. Transformations that in his view revealed something distinctive and important about the rational mind at work in science. The themes we'll meet in Bachelard's work this week are that science does not describe reality, it constructs it, that mathematics is central to this constructive activity, that this constructive activity requires that we overcome obstacles left over from everyday ways of thinking, and that scientific rationality is not a unified or universal undertaking. Next week, we'll look more closely at his account of construction and the way scientific work produces new realities. Bachelard was struck by the originality of modern scientific thinking, which he attributed to the central role accorded to mathematics. He saw that in the 19th century, uh, mathematics had elaborated alternative non-Euclidean systems of geometry that amounted to fanciful experiments in the construction of forms of space quite unrecognisable to the experience even of scientists, let alone of most people. Yet not long afterwards, Einstein used one of these geometries in formulating his general theory of relativity, which still informs the way we understand the cosmos today. How can we describe what happened in this surprising turn? The key for Bachelard is that in devising the general theory of relativity, Einstein did not generalise from experience. He did not take the world as we know it to be, and did not use the assumptions built into this knowledge as a basis for an improved version. Instead, he used developments in mathematics to propose a new way of understanding certain familiar features of our experience, space, time and movement, and thereby placed us in a world radically different to the one we thought we were living in. Mathematics here serves as a laboratory, a laboratory for experimenting in the basic order of reality. And insofar as it is mathematical, scientific rationality is not descriptive, but constructive. I've referred here to non-Euclidean geometry, but for Bachelard, the discovery of subatomic particles and the emergence of quantum physics and the mathematics that goes with it as well was every bit as important as in its own way was the development of set theory. Kant proposed that the world we experience is structured by forms of sense and a priori conditions. In different ways, the 19th century then set about showing that these conditions were not in fact transcendental, but historical, which is to say that the way we understand and even see 
the world is structured by historical change in the formation of human consciousness in its relation to the environment and social conditions, by the evolution of our physiology, by cultural accidents, etc. While Bachelard's approach can be put in this context, it is actually quite distinct. It is that science, and in particular mathematics, actively and deliberately creates the conditions for the new forms of reality and for new experiences. Moreover, not only is this possible, it is the distinguishing feature of modern science. We are no longer the sovereign subjects of universal reason, as we were for Kant. But this does not mean that we are the hapless victims either of historical circumstance or of immutable laws that determine how history must unfold. We are capable of intervening directly in what for Kant had been the fixed and universal conditions of our experience. And such interventions, though historical in the sense that they engage with existing forms of, of rationality, are not themselves bound by a higher law that determines their form and thereby the direction that history must take, as, for example, one finds in Hegelian philosophy. Reason, in a sense, is liberated from its own laws. This is something we'll look at more closely next week, but we can already see that it has several important consequences. As I've suggested, it means that science is not itself bound by higher order laws, those of historical development, or those of universal reason, or even those of logic. Therefore, philosophy can no longer be the discourse that sits over science to pronounce on how it is to conduct itself and to demarcate between the good and the bad. Insofar as philosophy insists on the observance of laws and principles whose ground lies elsewhere, it may even be regarded by science as a hindrance to its development. Philosophy should, in Bachelard's view, learn from science. Similarly, and perhaps above all, the aim of science is not to describe the world of our everyday experience. A traditional view of science would suggest that we begin with observations, arrange these into an order of some kind, identify a law that describes the phenomena observed in each case, generalise this to a universal physical law, and then build a theory around it. Bachelard rejects this model. To think scientifically, the mind must free itself from the assumption that the world is fundamentally as we experience it, and especially not as we experience it initially, before we have reflected on it. For example, as we see in the reading for this week, Bachelard sets himself firmly against the concept of substance, which has, since Aristotle, played a central role in the philosophical organisation of our view of the world. The concept of substance has at least three significant defects for Bachelard. First, it encourages us to say what something is essentially. And all manner of unscientific impressions may be carried over and then fixed into what is 
supposed to be then unchanging the essential characteristics. Second, a substance exists independently. It's not, it's not, it is not a property of anything else. But we now understand even the basic components of the world to be relational. And again, this is something we'll come back to next week. And finally, substance became a surrogate for reality in general, which invited philosophy to regard its study of substance or being as fundamental. Bachelard, by contrast, was a pluralist, content to allow different branches of inquiry to account for different phenomena without being grounded in a single account of nature or reality as such. In short, concepts such as substance and many other forms drawn from our everyday understanding exert a considerable grip on how we see the world and think about what we see. They are, in Bachelard's terms, epistemological obstacles. Removing them requires what he calls an epistemological break. And this is what he writes about in chapter one of the formation of the scientific mind. One further point is worth making here. The rational mind progresses by correcting its mistakes and is for this reason always historical, even if this history is discontinuous. Bachelard often refers to thinking as dialectical, but this should not be taken as a commitment to Hegelian philosophy. Rather, it indicates that he regards scientific thinking as dynamic and corrective. Our previous ways of thinking need to be, in his words, rectified. This might lead one to ask what standard enables the scientific mind to judge an error and its subsequent rectification. But in fact, the elimination of error has more to do with weeding out confusions than aligning our view of the world with how it is in reality, in some sense. Bachelard refers to this on the first page of chapter one. As he describes it here, rectification is predominantly retrospective. We discover truth through a real intellectual repentance, he writes. Whereas elsewhere in his work, rectification is more future oriented in the sense that it is a step taken to refine or resolve problem in current thinking and experimentation. We'll see more of this again next week, but already at the end of the first section of this chapter, Bachelard describes how thinking finds ways to vary the conditions of what it investigates, rather than just contemplating it. He writes, specifying, rectifying, diversifying, these are dynamic ways of thinking that escape from certainty and unity and for which homogeneous systems present obstacles rather than imparting momentum. In this way, the open-ended and experimental nature of scientific thinking takes precedence over the need to systemize and unify. It's interesting to place this alongside the emphasis on construction that Bachelard has already made clear in the opening paragraphs of chapter one. And he writes, for example, nothing is self-evident, nothing is given, everything is constructed. Construction, then, is not system building. 
it is more like the elaboration of a series of sketches. Literally one could think here of an artist repeating a work over and over each iteration and mending something in the last, trying something a little different, responding to a problem she sees. Bachelard reinforces this creative notion when he writes that to think scientifically is not to acquire an experimental culture, but to change from one experimental culture to another. The epistemological obstacle is what hinders this change, and its removal calls for what he calls a psychoanalysis of the scientific mind. That is, an inquiry that reaches beneath the surface of scientific thinking to find the knots that hold thinking fast to simple ideas and assumptions drawn from everyday experience that need to be given up if one is to think more creatively. Just one further thought regarding this text for now. Bachelard observes that there is a danger in explaining things either in, ter in terms of the unity of nature or the usefulness of natural phenomena. The first point reflects his commitment to multiplicity, discontinuity. Science for Bachelard is plural and there is no good reason to aim at the unification of its different branches. Such a move reflects a philosophical impulse to give science a foundation in something like universal reason, that is to say, the, a move to unify these different branches uh, reflects such an impulse to give science a foundation in something like universal reason, and that's an impulse that Bachelard resists. The second point indicates that for Bachelard, pragmatism is a closely related point of view, but not one with which he wishes to be identified. In his book, La Connaissance Approchée, he repeatedly contrasts his line of thought to pragmatism, principally that of William James. Ultimately, this has to do with Bachelard wishing to keep open a degree of experimental creativity that is not reducible to what is useful according to our existing needs and ways of thinking, or even necessarily what works for us in the here and now. Ultimately, the mark of rational thought is for Bachelard not that it has a secure foundation in logic or that it is universal or systematic. It is rather that it is active, inventive, attentive to the unique challenges posed by the matter to which it is addressed, and procedural in the sense that it does not expect to be right once and for all. His view of science is often associated with the idea of the epistemological break, not least because the idea was adopted by Louis Althusser, for whom it served as a gateway to a scientific Marxism free from ideology. But this emphasis on the epistemological break can leave Bachelard looking rather one-dimensional. His pluralism and his commitment to local practices of inventive inquiry are at least as significant. For Bachelard, rational thinking is a situated engagement in a problem that it transforms rather than simply solving. And it's this transformative quality that we'll come back to when we turn our attention later to the work of Michel Foucault.